Acts 27, 1-44 When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking on an Adramidian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete, off Salmoni, and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close in shore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called a Eurekio. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Claudia, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship, and fearing that it might run aground in the shallows of Citrus, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice, and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you, keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship." For this very night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out as exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. When the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms, and a little farther, and they took another sounding and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. 
But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let it let down the ship's boat into the sea on pretense of it, intending to lay out the anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain on the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been consistently watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. Not a hair on your head of any of you will perish. Now, Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons, and when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where the two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the forces of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape, but the centurion wanted to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention, and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and that the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. The Word of the Lord. What a cool story. After weeks of these kind of repetitive scenes where Paul is in court before this governor or that king, this is an actually like exciting story. Like you could see this as a film script or something. Obviously, with 44 verses in length, I'm not going to go into great detail in every verse and every nuance of the story. And with my history as a, as a person who was in the Coast Guard, I am so tempted to talk about all the nautical terms and the decisions that were made in the story, like them deploying the sea anchor or using this really cool lashing technique to keep the hull together in the storm, as described in verse 17. But I'm not going to do that. As I've been praying over the text and studying it in the context of the rest of the Bible, I'm going to preach it in such a way that I hope helps us connect this story to the larger movement of God. And in so doing, I, ho I hope that it connects with where you and I are actually at in our life. After all, the Bible is not merely a book of interesting stories or fascinating historical events. It's the living Word of God. And even stories about shipwrecked apostles that took place over 1900 years ago, they still have a way of allowing God to reach us here in the 21st century. So what does this story about Paul and Luke and a ship full of prisoners in a storm, what does that have to do with us? The clue that ties this story to the rest of scripture and to us is water. See, from our modern perspective, we read about a sailing voyage across the Mediterranean in fairly straightforward terms. Either you think of such, the, uh, such a story kind of romantically, uh, maybe you've been on a cruise or you've had the privilege of being a sailor uh, in the modern world, or maybe your main way of thinking about ships and the, and the ocean is through film or books. But whatever your vantage point is, 
it isn't the vantage point of someone who is in the biblical story. Because for us, water is H2O. For us, weather is predictable. On my phone, I can look up the, the weather for the next 15 days. Voyages happen all the time at sea and without very much incident, unless somebody makes a bad decision in sailing into rough weather. But to an ancient Israelite, the water was a mysterious thing at best, and a dangerous, chaotic force, or even the home to evil creatures at worst. The Greeks and the Phoenicians and even the Romans to a degree, these were seafaring pe people. You know, they had navies. They conducted trade regularly on the waterways. But Israelites, historically speaking, were not so. The Israelites had fishermen, but primarily their history and culture was one of shepherds and Bedouin nomads. They were people of the land. The ancient Israelites were more a people of the ancient Near East than they were those of the Mediterranean. And because of their origins, they had a deep suspicion about water. The waters, to be sure, were created by God. But just as God is mysterious and to be revered and, and have a healthy fear, so the waters could be just as dangerous. And sometimes they're almost thought of in biblical literature as something as having their own spiritual properties that they're best left alone, or at least held with a very healthy fear. So when a first century reader is picking up Acts 17, they aren't necessarily thinking, oh, this is going to be a great story. Paul is going to, to Rome by ship. I wonder what things he'll see. I wonder if he'll encounter some whales along the way or get in some fishing on the side. No, like if an ancient Israelite were reading this story, they will simultaneously think, this is dangerous, and this is a place that God might just be at work. Now, consider the ways that we see water in Scripture. In Genesis 1, before dry land appears and before any plants or animals, there is this watery chaos, churning, dark waters, uninhabitable and fearsome. That is, until the Spirit of God hovered overhead and spoke order into the chaos. From the waters of chaos, God brings new life. In Genesis 6, when humanity has rebelled against God, basically reverting into chaos, God sends a flood. But in the midst of, of this plan, he chooses Noah and his family to be the salvation of the world. Through this family, he will rescue humanity and the animal kingdom. And so, in the face of the watery chaos, God saves his creation. Generations later, when the Israelites are captive in Egypt and Pharaoh orders the newborn, newborn males to be killed, Moses is saved by being placed in the river Nile in a small raft. In Hebrew, the same word for Noah's ark is the word used for the raft that Moses was in. And once again, God works through the waters to bring salvation. Years later, Moses leads the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, and it's God who parts the waters of the Red Sea. God is leading his people through the walls of dangerous water on either side in order to save them and to spread the news of his grace to the whole world. From that Red Sea event, we also get baptism, the symbolic act of people receiving the salvation of God through the dangerous waters. 
That which can instill fear and death can also bring new life and salvation. So just as Jesus died and rose, forgiving our sin and defeating death, so we go under the water to symbolically die with Jesus, and we come out of the water to receive the breath of new life in Jesus. So in the biblical worldview, water is a place of danger and even death, but it is also the context in which God works to save. Now, water is a metaphor for everything that unsettles us. Water wakes us from the false belief that we are the true masters of our own lives. And I believe that every single one of us at multiple points in our lives experience being in the storm or in the chaos of biblical waters. Every one of us comes to multiple places in our lives when we realize that we are in trouble in at least two main ways. The first are those who set about going, ab going about their lives as if we are in control. And to be honest, that's most of us if we experience the relative affluence of the United States. We are told, most of us from a very young age, that we can pretty much do anything we set our minds to. We are encouraged to make plans, make financial plans, career plans, family planning. They even have family planning. We're told through media and the spirit of the age that we should expect life to make us happy, that that should be the norm. And we should expect our friends and our partners to make us happy. And we are set up with the expectation that if you plan well and work hard, you can accomplish most anything. In Acts 27, the Roman centurion and his men were very much used to being in control. In those days, Rome was dependent upon ships from Alexandria to supply grain for the high population density in the capital city. And rather than using precious naval resources, Roman officers could walk into any merchant ship heading to Rome and say, hey, we're going to be joining you. You'll be our ferry on your way to wherever we need to go. But even a Roman centurion who carries the authority of the emperor, even that person is not all powerful. His best laid plans and political power are exposed as ultimately powerless in the face of the storm on the sea. The mighty Alexandrian grain hauler, well over a thousand ton vessel, which is still a formidable ship even by today's standards, that thing was a toy in the raging waters of the Mediterranean. We know from the details in the text that the ship was sailing late in the shipping season. Verse 9 in particular says that they were sailing after the fast. That's a reference to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This puts them somewhere at the end of September or early October, depending on whether or not this was A.D. 58 or A.D. 59. Those are the, that's the kind of the dates that uh, scholars believe this happened. Either way, the shorter days and increasing cloud cover made ancient navigation much more difficult. Add the foul weather, and most ships didn't even sail at this time of year. Now, what was this ship doing sailing? Well, historians tell us that Rome was so desperate for a constant supply from Egypt of grain and other goods that the empire would guarantee the loss of cargo if sailors would risk the ship, the, the trek. So these were experienced sailors and a Roman officer acting under the authority of the empire. And yet they were easily undone 
by the watery chaos. How many times are we left frustrated in our lives? How many times have we gotten in over our heads by succumbing to the pressures of other people? Have you ever overburdened yourself trying to meet someone else's expectations, not necessarily God's expectations? Have you ever come to see the limits of yourself by trying to be a god or goddess in a human body? Have you ever made choices that you thought might be for your own benefit or for your own gain, but you end up seeing that you're enslaved by those choices? The truth is, we don't have nearly as much control over the outcomes of our plans or the reach of our power as we'd like to think. The salty, experienced sailors on this storm, uh, in this story, they're terrified. They'd given up hope. The Roman centurion was at his wit's end. And the truth is that our lives are vulnerable and shipwrecks are common in life and we need rescue. Every single one of us needs rescue. But there's another way we experience the reality of the waters of chaos in our lives. If the first way is the surprising shock to our pride and arrogance and thinking that we can just plan our whole lives out, the second way is through forces that act upon us. In Acts 27, we know from the narrator's perspective that Jesus has willed Paul to go to Rome. But make no mistake, Paul's actual experience is that of a prisoner. The narrative says that there are 276 people on board this ship. This is a grain hauler. The crew of, on this ship is probably no more than 40. The Roman officer and his crew of guards, probably 30, maybe 40. That means that the majority of the passengers are prisoners. And John Stott postulates that, unlike Paul, the other prisoners were likely headed to Rome to supply the Colosseum for the games. These men were all on death row. My point is that Paul and these prisoners, and to a degree the ship's crew, they'd been commandeered by the Romans. They were all powerless. Their involvement in this voyage was decided for them. Chapter 27 opens with the line, When it was decided that we would set sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. In this one sentence, we are struck by the use of passives. When it was decided, they proceeded to deliver Paul, right? Basically, Paul is being acted upon. Someone is deciding how they'll travel, when they'll travel, and Paul is simply cargo who can be handed over. The other prisoners, they're, they're not even humans to these Romans. They are players in the games, pawns to be used for food for the beasts and the entertainment of crowds in Rome. So if one of the ways we experience the chaos of waters in reality is when we reap the consequences of our bad choices, this second example stands for all those times we are acted upon with seemingly no fault of our own. You know, sometimes it's coming to grips with our bodies that fail us through sickness or infertility or aging. Sometimes it's genetics we inherit or the family system we're born into or the class structure to which we belong. We can't choose the hand we're dealt, so goes the saying. 
And sometimes we're just at the mercy of the social or political movement or mental illness or market forces or, as we've all seen all too well, the global pandemic that's upon us. So whether by our own choices or forces that act upon us, we're all storm-tossed and shipwrecked, and we are in need of salvation. And at the same time, we're all incapable of saving ourselves. So what are we supposed to do? Is there salvation for the storm-tossed and shipwrecked? Well, thanks be to God, the answer from Scripture is yes. It's God who comes to the rescue. It's God who makes the impossible possible. And how does he do this? God, for whatever reason, which is a different sermon to be sure, but God chooses to work in and through people to accomplish his plans. So when he unleashes the chaos waters to begin a movement of new creation in Genesis 6, God works in and through Noah and his family. God then chooses Abraham and Sarah and promises to bless them so that the world would come to, to know God as sovereign and gracious over all creation. The family of Abraham becomes Israel, and the same promises of blessing and protection are in play. So when God chooses Moses to deliver his people from slavery, he works in and through the courage and faithfulness of the Hebrew midwives. He works in and through the insecurity and fear and stuttering lips of Moses. God raises up a Joshua and splits the Jordan River, again, water and salvation. God is so committed to working in and through people, his image bearers, that God became one. God himself became human and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. God is created to his plan for salvation for humanity that is storm-tossed and shipwrecked. He's accomplished this salvation through his work on the cross in the person of Jesus, and through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And now he has called the Spirit-filled followers of Jesus to share that message in word and in deed with the world. The message of good news to the storm-tossed and shipwrecked has two equally important aspects to it. First, it requires that we be somewhere on the journey of trusting Jesus for our own salvation. It requires that we learn to trust that Jesus will actually forgive us. It requires us to learn to trust that Jesus will deliver us from sin and eternal death and bring us one day into the new creation. It requires that we begin to repent of the way of the world and live into the life-giving and life-affirming way of Jesus. So as we look at the story in Acts 27, we may be tempted to see Paul as an almost otherworldly figure. I mean, he's calm under pressure of the storm. He has wisdom. Even at sea, he has wisdom that seems more insightful than the captain of the vessel or the Roman centurion. He has faith that God will deliver because he has the kind of relationship with God that reveals such things to him. But you've got to remember that Paul was not always like this. That Paul was once a man who was self-righteous. He used to be a persecutor of the church. He used to be in agreement with the murder and imprisonment of the followers of Jesus. Paul was, in many ways, acting like an antichrist. He didn't do anything to change his ways. He didn't strive to become different. It was all Jesus. I mean, Jesus encountered 
Paul on the road. Jesus revealed himself to Paul. Jesus showed grace to Paul. Jesus then called Paul into his service. It was all the grace of Jesus that rescued the storm-tossed and shipwrecked Saul and turned him into the Apostle Paul. If you have never experienced the love of Jesus or the forgiveness of Jesus, I would encourage you with all that I am to invite him into your storm-tossed and shipwrecked life. He's not waiting for you to clean everything up. He's not waiting for you to, to tidy up before you invite him in. It is exactly in the storm-tossed and, and shipwrecked life where he meets us in the watery chaos. I encourage you to invite him into your shame or insecurity, into your pride, into your apathy. Invite him into your anger and into your doubts. Jesus is the rescuer. He's the one through whom God has chosen to work for the salvation of the world. And that includes you and it includes me. If we're going to share the gospel with the world, we have to trust that Jesus can actually rescue. And it sure helps to have experienced the peace of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, and the security of Jesus if we're going to be agents of Jesus in the world. And this leads us to the second aspect of, of sharing the gospel. When we begin to experience the transforming grace of Jesus, we are in a position to share it with other people. You know, from a worldly perspective, Paul is just a prisoner on this ship. He's property of the empire. He's powerless. But in the storm-tossed Mediterranean waters, it was Paul who was the agent of hope and calm and encouragement. The crew were so afraid that they couldn't even eat for like 14 days until Paul encouraged them and broke bread with them and said, eat, take sustenance, have hope. I have a word from the Lord. We'll be okay. When they were shipwrecked, the soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners, but Paul's presence, his value to the ship and to the crew caused a change in heart by, from the centurion. And, and Paul was a man transformed by Jesus, and that freed him up to care for other people in the midst of a terrifying time. Paul's presence, I want to say Jesus' presence in Paul, actually helped bring life to a situation that seemed like it would just end in death. And don't forget why Paul is on this ship in the first place. He may be a prisoner, but he wants to go to Rome. He knows that all roads lead to Rome and that if the gospel is unleashed there, it can be unleashed anywhere. The world needs people who believe in the transformative power of Jesus against impossible odds. That's what the church is supposed to be. A series of outposts or embassies around the world who dare to hope that Jesus is the salvation for our storm-tossed and shipwrecked world. May the Lord encourage us and empower us to live out that calling.